0: All right, you guys, if you want to go ahead and grab your seat, we'll get into the book of Acts. You can flip those Bibles to Acts chapter 20, going through the book of Acts. I, in the evening last night, I was like, ah, maybe, maybe we need to go just do an overview of Jeremiah and just look at all the high points again. Uh, see, my discernment was good. I was like, you know, sometimes too much of a good thing is a bad thing, you know, So we're in Acts 20, and uh, just have uh, two more weeks in Acts 20, and um, we're we're just going to take it a little slower with uh, a good word to elders. Um, Next week, Daniel Fox will be sharing at our church, so he'll speak at the men's muster, and then he's going to share here, so excited to have him visit, and then uh, the next week, um, we'll just finish up chapter 20 with a good word uh, for elders and for leadership, But uh, we're going to pick up in verse 13, and before we do, let me pray. Uh, Lord, just so thankful for the week uh, that we've had that you met us. We know that uh, the good work that you're doing in us, in our hearts, our minds, that didn't end on Friday, Lord, but really it just set the tone for uh, just what 2023 is to be, God. It's a year of you moving in our midst and uh, us just yielding our hearts, our minds, and everything we are to you, Lord. Uh, Today in this section of Paul's uh, just heart to some believers, um, and especially some leaders there, oh Lord, we pray that you would just uh, do the work in us that you did in Paul, as he shares a little of his spiritual testimony and his ministry testimony, and that these things would be pressed into us as uh, Lord, your heart is that every member of Calvary Chapel would be a minister. Uh, it's not just for the paid staff, Lord. And so we pray that you would just raise up those servants, give them the same heart of Paul, which of course is just imitating you, Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, thanks, Curb, for the cup of water. Uh, so looking at verse uh, 13 through 16, pretty fast go through this little section from Troas to Miletus, then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he'd given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tragilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia He was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So uh, we just see something that I noticed uh, as I read John Stott a few weeks ago, uh, that we have uh, a resemblance here. It's not exact, but it is a resemblance of Paul's mission uh, to go to Jerusalem, similar to that of Jesus's mission to go to Jerusalem. Jesus in the gospels, when his Galilean ministry was over, it says uh, that he set his face toward Jerusalem, where he set his face like Flint, one preacher had said, to go to Jerusalem for the work that he had to redeem the world. And, and uh, Stott just points out a number of things, A through F. Uh, a, like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples Like Jesus, he was opposed by hostile Jews who plotted against his life. Like Jesus, he made or received three successive predictions of his passion or suffering, including being handed over to the Gentiles. Um, Like Jesus, he was ready to lay down his life. And like Jesus, he was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it. One final one was, like Jesus, he expressed his abandonment to the will of God. And in conclusion to all of that, Stott says, even if some of the details are not pressed, Luke surely intends his readers to see Paul as following in his master's footsteps when he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. And so Paul set his face and is following in the master's footsteps there. And then uh, as we move on in the text today, uh, Stott also said it may be helpful to divide Paul's next speech into three portions relating to the past, the future, and the present. And so what we're going to look at today is um, Paul's past. um, and, And it's really not all of his testimony and how he persecuted Christians and the road to Damascus. It doesn't go that far back. It's more his past ministry experience. And then we uh, see uh, the future ministry experience that he has, that he knows he's going to be persecuted and arrested and those kinds of things. And then, um, then it's interesting, it kind of goes back to the present, kind of in the middle. In the following weeks, we're going to look at that present exhortation to elders who are shepherding in this present time. So, Past, future is what we're in today. We'll look at the present in a, in a couple of weeks. So starting out in the past, verses 17 and 18. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they'd come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. So uh, he knew he's on, in a rush to get to Ephesus. He's looking at, uh, you know, his... Um, apple maps or his map quest or whatever the app that he has on his smartphone and it's saying you know you have this long to get to jerusalem and you're just going to be screeching into jerusalem before the feast and if you dilly-dally you know uh, and you know, he kind of adjusts it. What if I went up and around to Ephesus and just said hi to my elder friends there? And then it's like, nope, you'll miss the feast, you know? And so he just knows, oh gosh, we got to hurry you guys. And so he, he says, how about it'll save time instead of me making that 30 mile trip over to Ephesus from the coast and then back again to the coast. So 60 miles uh, to get back to the ship. How about you guys just rush down? Get down here and get to me, and so they just hurried and did their job, Pony Express sent a, a letter to him and uh, and they rushed down and made it down in time for him to just have some really good time, uh, a mini pastors conference um, uh, that, that they would have there in Miletus. and uh, and so this speech uh, it was FF F. Bruce says is altogether in the style of the writer of the book of Acts. he quotes Percy Gardner and yet. Offers phenomena which seem to imply that he was guided by memory in the composition, and so it's you know he's he's going to have some good trips down memory roads in these next few verses. A little fun fact to what Paul's going to say to the Ephesian elders is that this is the first speech in the whole book of Acts that addresses believers, and so it's just a, it's not only a pastor's conference, but it's one of the first conferences. Uh, that we have where the speech is given to us, to the believers. And so we begin with the manner that Paul lived among them. This is a retrospect of his Ephesian ministry. It is really special. Um, You know, about once a year, uh, we go to a pastor's conference. We take the elders to it. It's in Corvallis, and uh, it's really special. Every now and then, I'll make it to a Cannon Beach Conference Center uh, with the Spurgeon Fellowship. And um, you know, or a, or a bigger Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference. And they're such special times and just so edifying and encouraging in the race for those that are in ministry. And uh, But some of the most special things that happen at Pastors Conferences are when some of the seasoned veterans that have gone before you, uh, who have, you know, they've served the, the Lord well, they're in the final years of ministry, and uh, and they just share wisdom from their experiences. I mean, It is just, um, it is something that you can't take notes fast enough, you can't soak it in enough, and uh, you just, you gotta love those times. Well, the Ephesian pastors, uh, pastors of Ephesus, they're getting this time, as Paul just has a little retrospect of his Ephesian ministry, where he says, you guys know, uh, they spent three years together, Uh, all all Asia would have heard the word of God at this point, that Asia minor area of the globe. Um, There was a Bible college at the School of Tyrannus that was taking place. Um, You guys know me, he says. We have good history together. Some of my just greatest memories in ministry are those times I've just spent, you know, a some years with guys, you know, even those two year times can be so rich and you get to know people so well while you're in the trenches of ministry together. Uh, So you guys know from the first day I came to Asia, how I was living among you, you guys observed it. I wasn't hiding anything. We lived life together. We did life together as the church body should. We're in each other's homes. We're in each other's lives. We're in each other's trucks and in each other's cars. We're going for walks with one another. We know each other. We know each other. Well, this was the case with the Ephesian church. They knew Paul well. He says, you guys know in verse 19 that I was serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And so Paul's service was humble service. You might make a note of that. It was a humble service. And he says in verse 9, I was serving the Lord with all humility, Serving speaks of lowliness and compliance and obedience to the Lord. He was serving the Lord. He was lowly to the Lord. He was compliant to how the Lord does ministry. Gail Irwin um, wrote The Jesus Style of Ministry. And it's just a great book about, um, man, Jesus did servant leadership. You know, I'm compliant to the way the Lord does leadership. And uh, so he was serving the Lord uh, with humility and with lowliness. In a way, it's saying, uh, in lowliness, I was lowly, right? I'm just humbly humble, you know? Uh, That's what he's saying here. I was serving as I was serving. I'm serving the Lord with humility. Uh, This speaks of humility both vertically before the Lord, uh, humble before the Lord as we're serving. Not allowing ourselves to get puffed up in our ministering, um, but also horizontally humble before men. Never feeling like we have any rights, but rather we owe our fellow man to lay our lives down for one another and to get the gospel into their hearts and into their minds. Philippians 2, 3, the chapter Ought to come to your mind when anything concerning humility comes up. It's a good memorizing section. Uh, and he just says in Philippians 2 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And a- another phrase of that is uh, let nothing be done uh, with a de- desire to see yourself succeed. Right? When it comes to ministry, it's not about you succeeding and how can I advance my name my social media presence, you know, but rather uh, let it be in lowliness of mind. And, you know, the Greeks hated that phrase. Uh, Another way that they would put it was humble minded, you know, Uh, and it's like, no, they didn't like that. They, with all of their philosophies, they wanted you to be high minded, puffed up in your knowledge and in your philosophies. And he says, you know what? No, we're in lowliness of mind. We have a good understanding of who we are and who the Lord is. In our lowliness of mind, we each esteem others as better than ourselves. Or let each esteem others as better than himself is how the verse says. And so in our humility, in our serving, we have the mind that was in Christ Jesus that puts others first. Okay, We esteem others as better than us. So think about what that looks like in your home you know, at work and within the church and even think of like what your Sunday looks like as you come here and you come through the door and you kind of find your seat and you go to this and you're kind of here for a certain amount of time, you know, and, and think of what that looks like throughout the week concerning your church life. And in your understanding of yourself, are you putting other people first within the church? Are you esteeming others as better than yourselves? Uh, Romans, it's a verse we looked at recently, speaks of uh, in honor, we give preference to one another. We say, I prefer you, brother. I prefer you, sister. And um, I think I even mentioned it recently. Um, when I started walking with the Lord, uh, there was just all kinds of selfishness uh, in my heart, uh, just starting to walk with the Lord. And I just remember whatever I could do in my home as a teenage boy to be the one that's exalted among the siblings and have to do the least amount of chores, I would do that. And often that would come to many fights, you know, many beat downs on my sisters, you know, and some beat downs from my sisters towards me, you know, and, uh, and just selfishness, you know, and, you know, my sister would go sit in the front seat of the car. And I remember opening the door and like, get out. I'm I called it, you know, or whatever. We each had our day that we got to sit in the front, you know, and it's like, get out. No, we're not leaving. Hey, we're late for ch- We're late for church, you know. Uh, get out. We're not leaving until they get out. I called it. You know, I'm not, you know, and then you start, you know, you get saved and the Holy Spirit changes you. You start studying Jesus. And you start seeing the Jesus style of being a brother and the Jesus style of being a sister. And in humility and honor now, you start preferring your siblings. You start preferring your uh, friends. And I remember at that time, uh, a lot of guys that were starting to come to the church when this youth group, uh, just revival was happening. Uh, they would kind of start out coming and a little bit selfish and we'd go drive somewhere like shotgun, you know, and like, oh yeah, shotgun. Oh, he called shotgun. You I called shotgun, you know? And then as we started walking with the Lord, it was like, Hey, why don't we have so let so-and-so sit in the front this time you know? And then there would be those funny fights that we'd have like, no, you're in the front. And you're just like, Russ, get in there, get in the front. I get the back, you know, and you got your knees up to your chin, you know? And it's like, what a beautiful thing, you know, when we serve one another and give preference to one another. And Paul just lived a life of humility serving, serving the Ephesians. Paul didn't act like a religious celebrity. And there's a lot of those around here. I sometimes, you know, uh, on Twitter, I follow a lot of pastors and Sometimes I'm like, I think this guy kind of thinks a lot of himself, you know, um, and, and Paul was never about his religious celebrity or expecting people to honor him or to serve him. And uh, how many pastors or um, maybe I should say popes and bishops included in that, you know, uh, miss that mark, you know, and it's about your prestige being served um, instead of serving So Paul served the Lord with all humility. That humility is a key ingredient in the recipe of serving God. Humility is an attitude that's seen in how we live and heard in what we say. It's been said humility is a true estimation of oneself in light of God's infinite value and worth. I wonder what estimation of yourself you have of yourself. Some of us think we're pretty spectacular, you know. Um, Because Paul was humble in his servant toward the Lord, there was nothing that he wouldn't do for the Lord. He would lay down his life for the Lord. There's no task that would be too small or menial for him. Paul was a genuine servant because he had genuine humility. And a phrase that stuck with me, uh, I started serving the Lord at that time in my life when Uh, that revival was happening. I started showing up early for youth group as a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, getting early, making sure the bathroom was clean. And then after youth group, I'd empty out the waste cans and wipe down the toilets and make sure the chairs were straight and stacking chairs and vacuuming and all those things. As a teenager, I had this servant role as a kid and that just started working a servant heart in me in other aspects of my life. But I remember one of my mentors saying this uh, and and it stuck in my heart. Ever since. And it was this You can always tell who the real servants are by the way they react when they're treated like one. All right. Can I say that one more time? You can always tell who the real servants are by the way they react when people treat them like one. Now, this happens within the church. When, you know, People go off and do something that's a little more fun, and maybe they ask you to do the task within the church that's, you know, the grody or when the I, I don't know if that's even a word, it's probably from the eighties and from when I was growing up. Grody. Grody to the max, I think we used to say, right? Gross, grotesque, all right? Heavy, hard, whatever it is. Like, hey, can you do this? Can you scrub the toilets in the church real quick? Well, you know, we're gonna run and get coffees for the children's ministry directors and you're there stuck with the the plunger and the little scrub brush thing and you're like, Well, that's so rude that they didn't pick me to go on the coffee run and I get you know, or just whatever it is and as you don't you're not here long before, you know, you get the task that's like, oh, this you know, I'm at the youth group and the kids got you know, macaroni and cheese uh, for their snack today and someone dumped a whole cup of it on the ground and then someone else ran by and stepped on it and squished it in and now they're all running around. Now it's game time, you know, and Perry gets to go lead the games, right? Good on Perry. And then I'm down here with like a dustpan and some kind of wire brush trying to get mac and cheese out from the carpet thread. You know, this is hypothetical. <laughs> you know, um, but you know, it's like, how do we react when, we're abandoned to do those menial, obscure tasks. They always get to lead worship. They always get to be up front. They're always recognized um, for the service that they're doing in the church. I never get recognized. I serve in obscurity. Uh, nobody praises me. Nobody thanks me. I don't even think anybody knows that I'm doing this. And let me just tell you, the Lord knows great is your reward in heaven. Keep doing it because the Lord uses those who are happy to serve in humility and obscurity when nobody knows. If you'll continue when you're getting nothing for wiping the urine off the urinals, then the Lord says, you've been faithful in the little things. Now I know I can make you ruler over much. And it's just the same in your home as it is within the church. And Paul led by example uh, in that way he served the lord with all humility in the midst of opposition in the midst of sup- suffering with many tears he says part of that was just uh the weeping and the trials that he from the trials that he went through through the plotting of the jews uh in acts 20:20 20, 20, little tribute to the late barbara walters right there and this is 2020 okay bless her soul bless her bones okay how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but cro- proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Just like Thomas the train is a useful engine, Paul the Apostle was a helpful servant. He's a helpful little guy, right? And he held back nothing that was helpful. He didn't only teach on topics that pleased him or that were popular. He kept back nothing that was helpful. He preached it. He taught it. There's teaching and there's preaching. And he did it publicly when there was, you know, the loudspeakers present, you know, or there was the big platform in the community. And he did it in the little home fellowships or the house churches that were meeting all throughout Ephesus. Moving on in 2021, he would testify to Jews and non-Jews, to the Greeks. And his message was this. It's twofold. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So the message that he preached, that's the message that we preach, is repentance and faith. Now, repentance speaks of changing direction, right? It speaks of changing your mind. And that's, Ultimately, in changing our mind about who God is and how he views sin, reading Jeremiah this week was so good for anyone that might think that, you know, that God just kind of winks at sin and, you know, doesn't ultimately judge sin or that, you know, sin's just kind of like this little, oh, trivial thing that, you know, you can kind of partake of it and it's like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I know, but what do you do? You know, it's like, I don't know, but guess you're going to do it. Yeah, I know. And well, well, we'll all end up in heaven together anyways. And you just see the decisive nature of God and his heart towards sin and how he judges sin. And that he beckons his people to come back out of backsliding and to come back and abandon those things and give themselves into his will once again. And so repentance speaks of if you're going one direction you know, oh, this is how I view lust, that it's acceptable in my life. This is how I view drunkenness. It's acceptable in my life. Uh, This is how I view covetousness. This is how I view, you know, uh, the Lord's day or whatever. If it's against God, you hear the Bible, you hear the word of God, you hear the voice of the preacher, and you realize that your mind doesn't line up with God. Your mind doesn't line up with God's will. And it's it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong. The New Testament says, grant us repentance, okay? In the midst of it, though, there's also man's work, man's responsibility, where they turn away from their way, antagonistic to God's way, they repent, and they go the other direction, okay? It's a 180 if you're into skateboarding, okay? You were going this way, you were on your scooter at the bike park, you know, You hit the top of the ramp or what, you know, and you're up there and you go the other direction. You say, you know what? No, now I'm doing a 180 and I'm following the Lord. Here's what the Lord says about lust. Here's what the Lord says about greed. Here's what the Lord says about money. Here's what the Lord says about Sundays. Here's what the Lord says about giving and generosity. And you know what? It didn't line up with my way of thinking, but the Bible is yes and amen. And I say, okay, we're going your way. We're walking in purity. We're walking in sobriety. We're walking in obedience. We're walking in faithfulness and we're walking this way, and a lot of times people think, you know, well, I'm, I'm a better athlete than you, and I can do a 360, right, a lot of Christians, that's what, they're like, oh, 360, and they, you know, they get all emotional at the big event, at the men's muster, oh, you know, and it's like, that was awesome, do you see so-and-so at the men's muster, like, woo, praise God, and then, like, two weeks later, it's like, they're living exactly how they did before the men's muster. I don't even know if they remember that they went to the men's muster, you know. That'd be the 360, right? That's not repentance. That's not genuine repentance. Repentance is going the other way. And notice how it says when they preach they re- they preach repentance toward God. Toward God. So now we're going somewhere. We're going in that direction of obedience to Christ. You know, you know the New Testament passage of flee sexual immorality, well, then what do you do? Well, I left sexual immorality and I really got into gambling, you know, but praise the Lord, I've got some self-control with my body. It's like, yeah, you just left one vice for another. It says flee sexual immorality and pursue righteousness, right? You're leaving that way and now you're pursuing good things, righteous things, the things that God calls us toward. I believe you guys, if you Flee those things, and then you begin pursuing the things that the Lord calls us to, you're going to see wonderful victory and not even having any desire to return as a dog to his vomit. Because you're going to find the good things of the Lord far more pleasant. All right? So we're repenting, and now we're going toward God, and we also have faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So the message of the gospel is repentance and faith turn and believe versus turn or burn, right? Okay, yeah, turn and believe, turn and have faith. It's the message, repent to God and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that was a little bit of of his past, okay? And now we're looking at the future that he knows is coming his way uh, regarding ministry. And in verse 22, we see, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen me there, happen to me there. And so he kind of says, man, here's you guys know that this is how I lived among you, how I served among you. And now I'm letting you know, this is what's going to happen to me in the future. I'm heading to Jerusalem. I hope to make the feast. I don't know what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, and then just a minute, he's going to say, this, this is the hunch that I'm getting. Okay. But um, we see here though, Paul is faithful to the call to go where he senses the Lord is taking him. Uh, Faithfulness to the call is better whether I live or better than if I live comfortably. All right? Faithful to the call. Doesn't matter if I live or if I'm comfortable, I got to obey the Lord and be faithful to him. And you know what? That seems a little bit un-American or at least un-American dreams sometimes. And I wonder how many Americans like Paul are bound in the spirit. You know, the spirit was leading him to Rome where chains and tribulations would meet him. Then on towards Spain. And he was bound in the spirit to be a part of the will of God. I'm bound to the will of God by the spirit of God. Not knowing what's going to happen. You know, someone once said, you can live without thorough knowledge of what tomorrow holds. It doesn't matter what happens, just be faithful. Job said it in 1315, where he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I often pray that when people come for prayer, when they have something very difficult going on. And I just pray out Job's prayer that, you know what, you can trust him you can take him to the bank. He's always faithful. And even if part of his plan is that you might die or you might you know, go through something very difficult and traumatic, even if he were to slay you, his plans are always for your good and for his glory. I remember when my dad died, when I was 19 years old, my dad was my hero, my best friend. Just I loved him so much. And, uh, and I remember when a, just a teenage friend of mine came to my dad's funeral and he just said, Rory, there's a teenager speaking to me. Uh, I was just thinking of a lot of our teenagers that we have that have this type of friendship here in the church. It's just real special. But um, a teenager spoke to me and said, Rory, Romans 8 tells us, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he says, he said this. Very insightful for a teenager. He says, Rory, it doesn't say we see that all things work together for the good, but we know it. And I just, funny, I'm 41 years old and something that this kid spoke to me at 19 years old still sticks with me. And it's like, you guys, you might not see it right now. All right. You, all you might see is that I'm here and that bad things await me when I go to Jerusalem, but I know. I can trust the Lord. Even if he slay me today, still I will trust him. God, give us that kind of heart. In verse 23, here's what I do know. It's kind of funny. I'm, I'm chuckling because he's like, I don't know what awaits me in Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So you do know. <laughs> right he 's like, "I kind of have an idea i just don 't know exactly how it 's all going to go down, and it 's going to be movie worthy as you as we continue uh, to see the book of Acts and read that and so the whole uh, it 's interesting every city here it, prophecies are given in chapter twenty one we 're going to see multiple prophecies given uh, where um, Prophets will say, hey, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound as I'm binding myself with this belt right now. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be imprisoned." And then they implore Paul, don't go. Some of the prophets even say, uh, the Lord doesn't want you to go there. Okay, and it kind of, we're going to see a little hint by next week um, as the difference between New Testament prophecies and kind of what you do with them versus kind of Old Testament, thus saith the Lord kind of stuff, because Paul he was saying, man, my conviction of heart is I got to get to Jerusalem and that these chains and imprisonments, it's actually going to be the will of the Lord uh, for my life. And so uh, Acts 9, when Paul first got saved, uh, the Lord showed him how many things he must suffer for Jesus's name. And so he knew that his life would be marked with suffering for the Lord and for the gospel. Even if he slay me, still I'll trust him. And we as Christians in the 20, what are we, the 21st century? We believe that things should be as easy as possible. But the word for us in this is don't forsake Christ when you know that tomorrow means trouble. Keep it up. Keep living for Jesus. Verse 24, but none of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of grace. I am hearing that chains and tribulations await me in every city. None of it troubles me. None of it moves me. None of it's altering my course. Because you know what? I don't even count my life dear to myself. Paul wasn't fearful or concerned of the trials or even death that would come his way. He wasn't movable. When you hear these sorts of things, are you movable or are you immovable? What kind of a Christian are you? Are you one like Paul who says, I don't even count my life as precious to myself. I don't value it so much that I'm not going to do the will of God. Paul knew that he belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ that he was made by God and bought by God. And he just relinquished his life in full surrender to the one who made him and bought him. He understood the fact of first Corinthians six, 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy spirit? Who's in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. Paul knew that he wasn't his own. He knew that he was bought at a price. First Corinthians says, therefore, glorify god in your body and in your spirit they're gods i don't count my life dear to myself because i know now that i'm a christian it's not my life anymore i've been bought at a price i am gods you guys this will change the way you look at everything in your life when you are not your own anymore and you are gods think of your man i hope you caught that you aren't gods You are God's possession, okay? Someone was like, I am a God, aren't I? That's a postable clip right there on YouTube, okay? You are the Lord's, all right? It changes the way you react to one another within your marriage. Hey, man, I'm the Lord's possession. You know, this is the Lord's stuff. These are the Lord's possessions as well. Uh, I believe it was uh, Howard Marshall who said, self-preservation was not a motive which Paul esteemed highly, his main concern was to fulfill the course which Christ had marked for him to run. It wasn't about self-preservation. It was about run the course. And if the course means suffering and anguish and tribulation, then God get the glory when I cross that finish line. Paul's overriding concern was not to survive at all costs, but to give God the glory as he spreads the message of the gospel throughout the world. Do you think something like this changes how we live during pandemics? Coronavirus times. What we do when we hear that this, you know, this could be contagious. We ought to not be around each other. We not, ought not obey the things that God's called us to do. Preserve yourself. Save yourself. Save your life. And hide in your basement. You know? Or do we look at the word's call for us and how we live as Christians and we say, there may be prop, proper profitable measures to take, all right? But it's not all about safety, okay? The Christian life is not all about safety. It's about running the race that God has set before us. Matthew sixteen twenty four says, if anyone desires to come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself. So it takes humility, right? You're denying self. Let him take up his cross, be ready to be executed in the most brutal fashion. And you know what? Live that way with your life. All right? Uh, for whoever desires to save his life is gonna lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or John twelve twenty five: he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So clearly Paul walked with that mindset and that biblical worldview that I'm not my own. I deny myself and I take up my cross. I'm following Jesus. I'm not all about self-preservation, saving my life, saving my health. I'm about what is going on right now in the kingdom and, and do people need to hear Jesus? Whatever it takes, I'm going after that call. Paul lived a life of total abandon uh, to the Lord. It all flies in the face of the American dream. We need to set our face like flint against the American dream. You know, for many, the American dream is retirement. I just ask you, look at Paul's life and tell me what his retirement plan was. What did he have going on there for his retirement plan? I don't know if you've looked up the definition of retirement lately or retire. Let me just give you five points that the dictionary gives. Retirement, number one, to withdraw from action or danger to retreat. Okay, so just write in your notes right there. Can't wait for retirement. It sounds very Christian to me. Withdrawing from danger or action. It just grieves me, and by the way, if there's many retired people in our church that I just see serving the Lord with reckless abandon, and it's a beautiful thing, so I don't have anybody in mind except that this is our culture that we're going to have to war against, okay? And it's that we, as, once we retire, we withdraw from the action of the kingdom of God and go live for ourselves. Not biblical, all right? Antichrist, I might say, all right? Retirement can be a retreat when God calls us to press forward. Second little definition here in the dictionary, to withdraw, especially for privacy, right? And so many people, they retire and they become hermits and they step out of body life and being part of a local church when the Lord calls us to be a part of it. And I just love, you know, when I see grandma Barb, you know, in her eighties and how she just she's like this is my family all right like it's you guys and i have you and she, we, she's not here for a little while we all get concerned and the text thread goes around anyone seen grandma barb or heard from grandma barb we got to go by we got to check on her make, and she always she comes up to me she grabs me by the shirt and she says don't you forget me <laughs> you know don't forget me
1: just don't ever
0: forget me you know and I love when you see older people and maybe they don't have a lot of family around, but they have the church family. My grandfather had a lot of blood relatives that lived in the same town as him, but he burned all of those bridges down. And at 97 years old, he was all by himself. And my heart was, oh, grandpa, if you would have been involved in a local church, you would have, you just missed out on so many treasures, you know? And yet retired people, often they go, they become hermits, right? And they, and they, Maybe hermit crabs, you know, and they get the Winnebago and then they just go live in their Winnebago or something, you know, uh, uh, to move back retirement, to move back or to recede. There's, there's no moving back in the Christian life, guys. There's only forward. There's only as the Chronicles of Narnia puts it so well, higher up and further in higher up and further in higher up and further in. All right. Till we get to the land of Aslan, right? That's the call of the Lord for us, higher up and further and not receding and drawing back. The fourth, to withdraw from one's position or occupation, conclude one's working or professional career. Uh, you know, I, I understand the working part, but I know that the Lord only has something better in the labor for the kingdom uh, in the fifth thing, retirement, to go to bed. No, <laughs> yeah, thought you'd like it. Okay. So for most, retirement means convenience, recovery, taking it easy. Once we're 62 to 65 years old, we're told, hey, you're done here. And then the next 20 to 30 years of life is wasted. I love what this one guy said. For a Christian, retirement is just a changing of your post in the war effort. All right. And so retirement can be a great thing. As long as it's still about the business of God and the battle of God. It's just a changing of your post and your position and what your life looks like in the war effort. So Paul says, all of this is so that I might finish my race with joy. Faithfulness to the call means finishing the race. The RSV says, finishing the course and uh, getting the crown. Uh, we've never been a running family. Uh, running has not been something that we've ever done. I remember in high school, driving by the track and watching kids run track, and like, you poor, you poor people. Like, don't you know you don't have to do that? <laughs> you know, and they're just, rrr, rrr. I'm like, drive by, you know. Now I'm all fat and saggy, and they're like, you know, Olympic gold athletes. But, uh, but this year, you probably know that. Uh, my son went out to track to just be with some friends and a guy um, from the community, uh, actually a father-in-law of one of my really good friends who has uh, connections to U of O and Prefontaine and, um, and a nationally recognized track coach in Grants Pass. He saw Russell run a race, one of his final races. Russell didn't know how to run or anything. One day, Dustin Cloud goes, uh, so Russell, when you run, run like this, run like this. And uh, in the next race, it was like Russell had had all this education all of a sudden. He he ran really well. And this man from our community said, I think Russell has got what it takes to make it really far. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to show this video of Russell to this track coach. And this guy uh, from Grant's Pass saw this and is like, I want to pour into him. I want to invest in him. So all year long, these guys have been just investing in Russell and sending him workouts and setting up runs for him and, you know, he's just, he's just growing and learning how to do this. And we just, the whole time we're just like, whatever the Lord has, you know, we don't have to do this, but it's just all in the Lord's hand. And so this year, so now he's a track and he's uh, running five miles a day and he's, uh, you know, cross country. A lot of our kids went to state and took third in state and just all this is new to me, you know, and I'm going to these cross country events. I'm like, Whoa, we're like in a forest, you know, they got flags all over the place and they say, go, and, and the kids go. And they're like, oh, they're gone now. You know? Like, oh, wait, no, they're going to come around. So we all go running over there. Right? I think it's a, a trick to get parents running. I'm on to you, cross country. Okay? And he's just, it's just so exciting, right? And it's just like there's this course. Hey, if, it's, if the little flaggies are on your right, you know, keep the little red flaggies on your right. Keep the white flaggies on your left and you'll be on the right course the whole time. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, man, I'm going through this life and got the little red flaggie on my right and the little white flaggie on my left. Just keep those in the perspective the whole time and you'll be on the right track. Oh, but this looks pleasant over here. This is where the lemonade stand is and the popcorn and the, the bleachers and the canopies. And hey, you know, it's like, what are you doing? The race isn't over. And Paul, you know, temptations. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to where there's persecution. Don't go to where there's hardship. And he says, you know what, guys, I just got to run the race that's set before me. All right. And there's these great passages that Paul loved to use. Um, Of course, the Greek influence was just highly influenced by Olympic culture and running. Uh, In first Corinthians nine, he has this great running passage. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it. In other words, run to win, right? We're all in this race. Paul had his race and they were running to obtain the prize. He was running to win. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So everyone's running, they're all running, they're they're temperate, they're disciplined in the way they run. And they're doing all this hard work for that little little trophy or that little coin that goes around their neck or the sweatshirt with their name on the back that's you know going to rot in about 5 years and you know not fit them anymore right it's like they do all that for that and he says guys the crown that we're running for it lasts forever lasts forever right he goes on to say therefore i run thus not with uncertainty thus i fight not as one who beats the air and i'm just reminded every time i read this i think of a a fight that I witnessed in middle school where a friend of mine got in a fight with another friend of mine. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it. And then they both just started. (laughs) Like both of them, nobody was connecting the whole time. (laughs) You know, I was like, well, I guess we're done here. You know, like no good connections. And then the bell rang and they're like, let's go. You know, all right. So Paul says, when I'm fighting, you know, I am, I'm not shadow boxing, like I'm landing my punches. When I'm running, I'm running to win. Kempo cardio up on the stage. I don't, hope our first responder's here. He says, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. That's that phrase we learned it during the fasting. I give myself the black eye. I make my body know who's boss so that I can win this race, that... Uh, And so uh, Paul was running this race to win it. Hebrews 12, it's a famous passage on the race. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Uh, he just came out of Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Many interpret that to say that, you know, everyone who went before us, all the fathers of the faith, all the saints who've gone before us, they're kind of in a coliseum watching us in our race, cheering us on, saying, I've been there, I've been through that hard thing, I've been through that difficult thing, don't worry about it, man. Keep the, right flaggy, or the red flaggy on the right, the white flaggy on the left. Keep running, right? And they're cheering us on. There's a cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on, uh, I think it was Damien Kyle that said, why would people want to watch us in heaven? It's probably better things to do. I'm like, yeah, good point, Damian Kyle. But uh, many people interpret this though that we've got a crowd cheering us on from the race. And so he says, because of that, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And so great sermons have been preached on this. Many of them titled, run without encumbrances. Run without encumbrances. Run without uh, you know, and you, th- you see people when they're training, you know, they got the weights on. Sometimes I run with a weighted vest and it's just real slow. And I like to run with this thing, kind of rucking style and, and get strong by running with the weight. Or you got those sweet little leg weights, you know, that you put on, you know, over your leg warmers, you know, the workout socks from the 80s, you know, and you go on your little walk with your leg weights on, right? But when it's time to run in the race, you shred all of those weights, you put on the spandex, Right. You know, you get all the extra stuff off of your body so that you can run without encumbrances. Now, notice two things that you want to get rid of when you run the race. Number one, there's weights and there's sin that ensnare us. So if we're going to run the race to win, you guys, we want to get rid of sin. I think that's pretty clear. We all know that. You can't run the race for the Lord if you've got sin clinging to you. Got to get rid of it. Okay? Okay. But also there's this interesting phrase that he says that there's weights that are hindering our race. And these are things that aren't sins. These might be things that are good things that the Lord says, it's not for you. Others can, not you. It's something that's slowing you down. And you know what that is. It's different for all of us. You have this thing in your life that, hey, you have every liberty to have it. But it's slowing you down in your walk for the Lord. Uh, I think it was, uh, oh gosh, who was it? Someone said, uh, Legitimate pleasure is something that refreshes you in the race rather than distracting you from the race. Uh, And so he goes on to say, And let us run with endurance the race that it's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so he says, as we're running the race, red flagging on the right, white flagging on the left, on course, we're looking to the finish line and Jesus is at the end of it. And he has already run the race. He was victorious. We can look to him at the end. He is our motivation to run this race well. And, uh, And he did it with us in mind as he ran that race. And so he wanted to run that race and finish well and finish with joy and the cheering and give God all the praise. He goes on to say, I want to finish the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He received this ministry from the Lord that he needed to finish it. Uh, It was a sacred deposit, which the Lord had made in his life. I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon that, uh, this morning, I was just like, oh, real quick at the end of my study, I'm going to just read as much Spurgeon as I can. And I had a few fun things from him, but he said this, according to this verse before us, the apostle regarded life as a race, which he had to run. Now, the more quickly a race is run, the better. Certainly length is not the object or desire. The one thought of a runner is how he can most speedily reach the winning post. He spurns the ground beneath him He cares not for the course he traverses, except so far as it is the way over which he must run to reach his desired end. Such was life to Paul. All the energies of his spirit were consecrated to the pursuit of one objective, namely that he might everywhere bear testimony to the gospel of the grace of God. And the life which he lived here below was only valued by him as a means to that end. So he Gives his life for that gospel. That sermon title was a gospel worth dying for. want you open your Bibles to Romans three, as we close, I want to just give you five verses. This is called the Romans road. And I want you to have this as you leave today as the points, main points of a gospel that's worth dying for a gospel. That's worth being imprisoned, a gospel worth suffering A gospel worth staying on the track for, okay? Uh, Here it is, very quick, for the sake of time. I want you there because I want you to, next to each verse, I want you to put a number. These are the waypoints in the Romans road to salvation. Uh, So put a little number one by Romans 3.23, okay? And here we have the bad news. We're gonna give you the bad news first. Bad news is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you can share the gospel with people and you start out by telling them, hey, have got bad news. You're a sinner. <laughs> and you can kind of explain sin. All right, number one, uh, all of sin and fallen short of God's glory. Number two, Romans 6.23. And it's actually in Romans 6.23 that you have numbers two and three, all right? Because there's some bad news. The wages of sin is death. Everybody's sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. And the payment for your sin is death, physical and eternal death. And then here's a good news. It's the third point, three, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you could die because of your sin and go to hell, or let me introduce you to some goodness. The gift of God, he wants you to have eternal life. The four things in Romans five eight. This is good news that God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, you, you just told me I'm a sinner. You told me all these things that I've done that's a sin, and that the wrath of God is upon sinners, and I'm going to go to hell. Oh, oh wait wait wait! I've got good news for you that. The gift of God's eternal life. And God loved you so much that even while you were in war against him, he died for you. He loved you when you were his enemy. He died for you, for your sins. And the fifth thing, final thing in Romans 10, 9. You tell this individual, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. He's talked to them about today, make a confession of Jesus being your Lord, being your Savior. Uh, As you do that, there's uh, righteousness that's imparted to you. And then just verse 13 in that same passage, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh friend, if you would call upon the name of the Lord today, you will be saved. You'll be saved. And so Paul had this yearning to preach the gospel, to get that out to as many people as possible. And yes, there's so much to the gospel. There's so much of God's electing, calling, and God's sovereignty in it all. Uh, This is just one easy and good way to share the gospel, people, with the book of Romans as you go through it. And uh, we're gonna have the worship team come on up as we close out here. Uh, But Paul, he just had this earnest desire to finish the race and share the gospel with as many people as possible. Chuck Smith said, uh, give me some men who are stout hearted men who will fight for the right they adore. Start me with 10 who are stout hearted men and I'll soon give you 10,000 more. You get people like Paul, you get a couple of those kind of guys that are just unwavering in the mission of God in their life, and and literally Paul had at least 10,000 or more men come out of a life like that. Uh, and so uh, we'll just go ahead and stop there and pause there in our uh, message of Acts chapter 20, and if you'll set your things aside, Lord, just... For those in this room that are not born again yet and are not saved, the Romans road is something really good for them to consider as they have their Bible open, God, that they would realize today that all have sinned, they have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That they would realize with great sobriety, Lord, that the wages of their sin is death and that they'll go to hell if they continue on this path but the gift of God is eternal life that they would have so much joy in understanding the grace of God that even while we were enemies you died for them and that if today they would just put their trust in you and put you in their place in the in the place of their heart as Lord Lord that you would save them so i just encourage you today if you're here and you walk through those doors and if you're honest maybe the lord would even show you today you were not saved when you walked in those doors you were not surrendered to the lordship you were in disobedience but today god wants to work repentance in you that 180 as you put faith towards him he wants to work in you just good and wonderful beautiful things as you put your trust in him today. And maybe it's just something as simple for you as saying, today, Lord, I trust you. I want to live for you. I want to continue following you, the one who's forgiven my sins. And for those of us who are Christians today, we take great, great exhortation in the plan to keep running, to keep going, to not live for just the pleasures of this American dream, To live for that retirement that would just let us live for ourselves and not for the Lord. But that we would keep the course and we would shed the weights and the sin. We would run to Jesus. He's at the end of the finish line cheering us on. Lord, help us to run with such endurance. Why don't we stand together today and we'll close with this song. One of the first verses there, we see that you ran... The race that was set before you. We read that in Hebrews twelve. You had a race and you did it well, Lord. Even though uh through the the race you went you met the suffering and the cross, but you ran all the way through the finish line, Lord, um, with joy set before you. God, just for all of us, we have that race before us. Let us hear from you what it is. Let me test it with the word. Let us get wisdom from our friends, and Lord, let us move forward and not draw back for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys. Lord bless you. Go get your kiddos and come hang out with some uh, Fireside Fellowship time. God bless you.